something curious about this broadcast. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP No Mono, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. It almost feels like we're still in March from last year, but uh, let's not dwell on that too much. And uh, I'll turn up the other fader and should be John Berger on the line. How are you doing, sir? Let, let's just not talk about last March at all. <laughs> no, we're on what, March 357, yeah. something like that? Yeah, it has been uh, a bizarre time, and I know we we do mention something about it at the beginning of each show because well, you kind of got to because we're all going through it. We don't try and be too serious about things, but we do occasionally like to send a message. You know, just keep doing the right thing. That's all I'm going to say on that one. But whilst we're on the topic of that, I kind of mentioned it to you off, off the air but um the russian vaccine i don't know if you guys out there know what the russian vaccine's called of all all things to call it sputnik <laughs> but why i do i suppose you could look at sputnik as being a beacon of good you know it's one thing that changed everything for the better for the russians and they look at it as something positive it was positive and you know that changed the way the world works and i suppose if you look at it that way hopefully that's what the vaccines are gonna do so yeah i can kind of see it in a way i mean i I guess but there have already been vaccines out there not done by russia they weren't the first so doesn't really apply but you know how it is with russia sometimes it's like well if it isn't done by russia then it doesn't exist I can't really talk too much about it, but we, we are organising a space and science-related festival to take place in April. Uh, we're collaborating with UK Astronomy and Twice Brewed Stargazing and a few other organisations as well are getting involved. Yeah, we're going to bring together quite a few decent people to talk and infuse about space and science. So that should be fun. Uh, but we will be keeping you advised on what's going on with that as soon as we can right i think we should take a little break and when we come back well last time we were on the air we did some stuff about um, sci-fi about star wars and star trek and all that kind of stuff so let's go back to the real space and that's exactly what we're gonna do hi i'm matt damon i play astronaut mark watney in the martian In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, 
The journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. by nature, explorers. The same curiosity that sends us to the stars at the speed of thought. Urges us to go there in reality. And whenever we make a great new leap, we elevate humanity, bring people and nations together, new discoveries and new technologies so remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet be curious This is TGP Nominal. So, it's been a busy time on Mars over the last few weeks. <laughs> and that's to say the least. The United Arab Emirates celebrated its first mission to Mars. The Hope Orbiter was the first of three space missions sent towards Mars during the July 2020 Mars launch window, and Hope reached Mars on February the 9th. The mission design, develops, and operations were led by the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center, or the MBRSC, and the spacecraft was developed by the MBRSC and the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, or LASP, at the University of Boulder, Colorado with the support of the Arizona State University and the University of California, Berkeley. It was assembled at the University of Colorado and launched from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan on board a Mitsubishi Heavy Industries H2A launch vehicle. Hope will study daily and seasonal weather cycles, weather events in lower atmosphere such as dust storms and how the weather varies in different regions of the planet. It will also add to our knowledge of Mars's atmospheric hydrogen and oxygen loss and other possible reasons behind the planet's drastic climate changes. The mission is being carried out by a team of Emirati engineers in collaboration with foreign research institutions. Hope has sent back some beautiful images of Mars when it was in orbit. I don't know if you saw some of those. No, I haven't. I'll have a look those up. They are really nice. There's one that's sort of what I would say like a half moon. So you've got half of the planet in shade and you can see all the craters and stuff. And uh, it looks really nice. Now, a day after Hope made it into Mars's orbit, China's Tianwen-1 probe reached Mars and successfully entered the planet's orbit on the 10th of February, bringing it one step closer to landing on the surface. The Tianwen-1, whose name literally means Quest for Heavenly Truth, is made up of an orbiter, a lander, and a six-wheeled rover carrying scientific instruments, according to the China National Space Administration. 
The spacecraft is expected to land on the planet's surface in May. Then we have lastly, and by no means least, NASA's Perseverance rover. It successfully landed on the surface of Mars at the Jezero Crater on the 18th of February. Now, everyone's been talking about the usual stuff with that, but I wanted to talk about the audiovisual elements of the mission. Dave Gruhl, and that's not Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, that's Dave Gruhl, who is uh, Perseverance's entry, descent and landing camera suite lead for JPL, gave a really passionate and at some points emotional briefing at a recent press conference. Now, before I play in this clip, I, I like to apologise for the sound quality. The live stream was a little bit choppy on that day. The idea of adding a ruggedized commercial off-the-shelf hardware onto a flagship spacecraft to do a nice-to-have function proved to be quite an interesting challenge that Matt handed over to us. Um, along the way, we encountered one, uh, maybe two people who uh, were a little bit skeptical of uh, what we were trying to do. But thankfully, we had the full support of uh, project leadership, um, all the individuals directly supporting the 2020 mission, we're super excited to help, and in the end, we were able to actually make it happen. Um, our EDL CAM team uh, were guided by uh, two, two requirements, if you will. Um, the first one was that the entry, descent, and landing system, camera system, must do no harm to the flight vehicle. Um, and that's especially important during EDL. Um, this was our one critical requirement, and uh, as you all saw last Thursday, uh, that requirement was met. Uh, the second item is not so much as a, of a requirement as it is a, a mantra, if you will. Uh, we get what we get, and we don't get upset. Um, we wanted our EDL cam system to get onto the vehicle and return amazing imagery of the uh, vehicle landing in uh, uh, Jezero Crater on Mars. Um, like every other element on the Mars 2020 spacecraft, individuals worked really hard and went above and beyond to make sure that their piece of the spacecraft uh, did what it was supposed to do and would be successful. Uh, but in the end, we knew that our entry, descent, and landing camera system, um, the mission could still be 100% successful if our camera system didn't work. And if we could even get just one image or one piece of information back during EDL, that we shouldn't get upset and we should be excited. Um, so as you probably realize after last Friday's press conference, um, uh, the EDL cam system successfully captured some amazing imagery of the vehicle's descent and landing on the surface of Mars. We collected a little over 30 gigabytes of information um, and over 23,000 images of the vehicle uh, descending down to the surface of Mars. Um, as a quick introduction, if I could have the first graphic, a reminder for some of you uh, exactly what are the sensors that we included in the entry, descent, and landing camera system. Uh, there are three cameras that are located on the top of the vehicle on the back shell. Uh, those cameras actually capture a high rate, uh, 75 frames a second imagery of the parachute inflating in the Martian atmosphere. Now one of the cameras stopped operating coincident with the mortar fire when the parachute was deployed, and that's to be expected. Um, it is a very high dynamic environment, um, but luckily the other two cameras continued to operate as expected and captured some amazing footage of the parachutes inflating in that Martian atmosphere. We put one camera on the bottom of the descent stage. That camera looked down on the rover as we lowered the rover on the bridles 
um, the mobility system latched into position, and then the vehicle touched down onto the surface of Mars. We also installed two cameras onto the rover, one on the top of the vehicle looking up on the descent stage so the rover could actually see the descent stage, lower it down to the surface, and then ideally fly off into the distance after it had delivered Perseverance safely onto the surface. And then we also put a camera on the bottom of the rover, which actually looked down on the surface of Mars once the heat shield was dropped away, and that camera continued to capture imagery until the vehicle touched down on the surface of Mars. The reaction to the EDOCAM videos has been absolutely amazing around JPL, and uh, we are super excited to actually share with all of you video imagery of Perseverance landing on the surface of Mars. We are starting the straighten up and fly right maneuver where the spacecraft will jettison the entry balance masses in preparation for parachute deploy and to roll over to give the radar a better look at the ground. Indicate shoot deploy. The navigation has confirmed that the parachute has deployed and we are seeing significant deceleration in the velocity. Our current velocity is 440 meters per second at an altitude of about 12 kilometers from the surface of Mars. Heat shield set. Perseverance has now slowed to subsonic speeds and the heat shield has been separated. This allows both the radar and the cameras to get their first look at the surface. Current velocity is 145 meters per second and an altitude of about 10 kilom nine and a half kilometers above the surface. Nav filter converged. Velocity solution 3.3 meters per second. Altitude 7.4 kilometers. Now has radar lock on the ground. Current velocity is about 100 meters per second, 6.6 .6 kilometers of the surface. Perseverance is continuing to descend on the parachute. We are coming up on the initialization of terrain relative navigation and subsequently the priming of the landing engines. Our current velocity is about 90 meters per second at an altitude of 4.2 kilometers. OVS valid. We have confirmation that the lander vision system has produced a valid solution and part of terrain relative navigation. Priming. TBA is nominal. We have priming of the landing engines. Back shell set. Current velocity is 83 meters per second at about 2.6 kilometers from the surface of Mars. We have confirmation that the back shell has separated. We are currently performing the divert maneuver. Current velocity is about 75 meters per second at an altitude of about a kilometer off the surface of Mars. Here in safety, Bravo. We have completed our terrain relative navigation. Current speed is about 30 meters per second, altitude of about 300 meters off the surface of Mars. We have started our constant velocity accordion, which means we are conducting the sky crane, about to conduct the sky crane maneuver. Sky crane maneuver has started, about 20 meters off the surface. We're getting signals from MRO. Tango Delta. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. That was crazy. Were you watching it live? Oh, was I just? I was watching it live. I was chatting with Ross. <laughs> Ross was at work watching it from the fire station where he works.
I was relaying to him things that he wasn't seeing. I wasn't watching the NASA stream. I was watching the Everyday Astronaut stream, and uh, I was hearing things that Tim Dodds was saying and uh, relaying that back. And um, Ross was like, is it down, is it down? And I went, Tango Delta. And he was like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then there was that whole delay of, okay, picture, picture, where's the picture? Give us the picture. Where is the picture? There's the picture! And everyone's like, why is it in black and white? Because the covers are still on the lenses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with all that dust that's probably kicked up. But you know, even with all of that, probably the coolest thing was that video afterward. That, that just put oh. the whole thing together. That was even cooler than the landing itself. Yeah, that was totally amazing. You know, because they captured it from pretty much every angle, didn't they? And did a three-way split on the screen so you could see it from the perspective of the lander looking up and then looking down and the parachute opening and... Oh, wow. Now, the second clip I wanted to play in was Dave Gruel again talking about the specs of the audiovisual equipment on board Percy. Have a listen to this modifications we made to the camera were minimal this was not a camera specifically designed for use on mars you can purchase the same camera off the internet for whatever applications you might have for it the only things we did is we actually uh added some bonding material on the inside to try to make sure that uh, in the dynamic environment of launch and then uh, that mortar fire event that they talked about uh that the camera will continue to operate and then we had to swap out a couple pieces on the inside because uh, in the vacuum of space, they had the uh, ability to outgas material. And if that material uh, deposited itself on the detector, then we wouldn't get the clear images that we actually got. But other than that, it was not specially designed for use for this application. It is a commercial off-the-shelf camera. And I want to add one more thing I wanted to mention about the, the camera technology and then this data. Um, it, we haven't mentioned it, but uh, in addition to use commercial cameras, um, we're using a commercial computer, an Intel-based PC that's running Linux, open source. So it's the first open source, at least that I know of, uh, open source Linux box running on the surface of Mars. Actually, inside the rover, it's, it's quite compact. Uh, and so there's the Linux operating system, and uh, we compress the video using FFmpeg, which is another open source tool. So thank you to the open source community uh, for allowing us to use your amazing software. That's just amazing. Why? What's special about that? The, the fact that everything is off the shelf is, is not specially made for NASA. That's a great message for anybody else who wants to do this sort of thing. You hear so much about proprietary technologies and so forth, and now kids could hear, hey, wait a minute, the rover actually has stuff that I could use and that I could build? Hey, with Arduino and all that stuff out there, lots of stuff out there that kids can do now. It was quite funny that I was li- listening to a couple of people on, on Facebook and they put this post up with, um, this is the cameras on board the rover on Mars. Look how clear that is. This is somebody's CCTV on Earth. It's rubbish, right? And I said, yes, well, so would you be if you'd spent so many billion dollars on the spacecraft? And I was like, well, actually, uh, no. <laughs> These are like bog standard things that you can buy off the internet that you could use as your CCTV if you wanted to. <laughs> this stuff could have been bought off of eBay. <laughs> I mean, I highly doubt it, but... <laughs> now, the next clip really hit me in the feels, and you know what I mean in the moment. 
I think we probably have overloaded your visual sense for a little bit, but we're going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to have some fun here for a second, too. So I'm going to get rid of this. And I'm going to talk to you now with this. This is the microphone that was part of the EDL camera system. Um, when the EDL cam system was first envisioned, it was set up as just a bunch of cameras um, to capture some amazing imagery on the surface of Mars. And about a year or so after it was first conceived, I got a phone call. Headquarters asked the question, could we possibly put a microphone as part of our EDL camera system? So we worked with the team, we took a look, and uh, sure enough, it was uh, something that, uh, that we could do. And so we started off that detailed design and uh, identifying a microphone that would work for us and uh, getting it onto the vehicle. About a year after uh, this first started, um, I was giving a tour um, at JPL. And uh, I happened to mention to the group that I was giving the tour to that uh, the decision had come down and we were working to actually include a microphone onto, onto the vehicle. And after the tour was done, a gal came up to me and she said some things to me that I won't forget anytime soon. She said, I'm super excited that you guys are going to try to put a microphone onto the rover and get it to the surface of Mars. And, and I was very appreciative. And I asked her afterwards, I said, I'm curious, why is it that this relates to you so much? And her response was that her sister was visually impaired. Uh, she was not able to see these images that, uh, that, that we saw earlier or that we sent down in the past. And while she tries to describe them to her, she felt that she just can't quite capture that same sense of amazement that she gets when she gets in visually. And that by actually getting a microphone out of the surface of Mars, the hope was that she'd be able to experience things on Mars the same way that, uh, that she was when she actually looked at them. Um, and that stuck with me. We continued to work super hard to make sure that this microphone would work. Um, I wish I had actually captured that uh, individual's name. I would love to reach out to her now and say, we've done it. I hope your sister is enjoying it. Because what I'm going to show you in a second, or what I'm going to, you're going to hear in a second, is actually the first sounds being recorded from the surface of Mars. So there are two microphones on the Perseverance vehicle. There's this microphone here, which is part of the entry, descent, and landing system. And there's a second microphone that is on the SuperCam instrument. And we're, we're counting on both of these instruments recording some absolutely amazing uh, sounds from the surface of Mars. So with that, um, I invite you now to, if you would like to close your eyes, and just imagine yourself sitting on the surface of Mars and listening to, to the surroundings. But yes, what you did hear 10 seconds in was an actual wind gust on the surface of Mars picked up by the microphone and sent back to us here on Earth. We can sit here now and, and actually tell you that we have recorded sounds from the surface of Mars. It's just, it's cool. It's really neat, overwhelming, if you will. Okay, and up next on the phone lines is Mike Wall from Space.com. There's a question for, for Dave. Um, what do you anticipate doing maybe with, with the EDL mic now that it's up and running? Do you see it having any kind of diagnostic uses during the deployments of the robotic arm and, and sort of like like the instrument checkouts and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you see it doing aside from recording Martian wind and the sound of the dirt under the wheels and so on? Thank you. Yes, we've had a lot of discussion about how we might be able to use uh, both the EDL cam microphone and the super cam microphone to do those type of diagnostic stuff. I mean, 
the ops team right now, I don't want to speak for Jessica, but they're focused on getting the system deployed and capturing noise of that is definitely not the first priority. They need to focus on getting this vehicle ready to perform some amazing science. But that doesn't mean in the future we could not sit down and discuss the possibility of capturing audio files of an actuator as it actually uh, spins on the surface of Mars. Um, you know, the, the noise is an incredible thing that engineers can use to basically detect the health of, of moving systems, gears and actuators and things like that. And so if we get a snapshot of an uh, of, uh, actuator today and, uh, you know, you can compare over time, do another snapshot, another audio file of that, uh, of that actuator in the future, compare the two and see if there's anything that can be learned in terms of the health of that, uh, that device. Now, with that said, I do need to remind everybody that uh, the, the microphone that's in the EDL camera system, just like all of the, the cameras and other hardware, is off-the-shelf hardware. It is not designed to live in the hostile environment of Mars. It gets down 120 degrees plus below zero at night, and then it warms up significantly more in the day to, what, minus 40 or something like that. So those temperature cycles and that cold temperature are going to significantly limit the life of, of these devices. They're just not designed to last for long periods of time. The SuperCam microphone might continue to work. It actually is designed a little bit more uh, for this particular environment. It can last longer. So I think, you know, as you heard, I think Dr. Z mentioned earlier, we're always surprised by how rugged and robust some of our items are, how long they actually last. You know, they, they continue to operate far longer than we designed them. Uh, we've gotten pretty lucky over the last couple of days. Perhaps we'll get lucky and the hardware will continue to operate uh, on the surface of Mars and allow us to do those type of diagnostic things in the future. So looking forward to doing some amazing things with the microphones going forward. We need to work with the ops team. There's some great science that they're, they're looking to do. We're hopeful that we continue to use these microphones, both the SuperCam microphone and the EDO cam microphone, to capture sounds, perhaps the rocks interacting with the surface. I think SuperCam is going to use theirs to get some great data of uh, them zapping rocks. So uh, as you've heard and we'll continue here, we're just beginning to do amazing things on the surface of Mars. The first thing I want to say again is that wasn't the quality of the mic that was cutting out there. It was the actual stream. But that's so clear. Mm -hmm. The story about the visually impaired girl, yeah, that touched me. If they are managing to do extra bits and pieces with the audio, that would be fantastic. During the briefing, Alan Chen, the EDL lead, described how patterns in the contrasting fabric panels of Percy's landing parachute are used to determine the parachute's orientation and in tracking how the different portions of the parachute inflate. He also said, sometimes we leave messages in our work for others to find, so we invite you all to give it a shot and show your work. <laughs> now, within six hours... <laughs> It took NASA fans to decode the message. The stripes which radiate from the parachute center seems to be in a seemingly random pattern of uh, concentric circles, but they actually spell out a message written in binary computer code. Each string of red and white stripes represents a single letter. When read in a clockwise order from the innermost ring of the parachute to the outermost ring, the coded letters spelt this message, they're mighty things. If that sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it's the same message is written across the walls of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory headquarters in Pasadena, California, and it has been the lab's motto for years. 
Now, this phrase actually originates from an 1899 speech by Theodore Roosevelt, where he said, Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much, because they live in a grey twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Now, along the outermost ring of the parachute also contains a set of coordinates, and those coordinates are the location of JPL's California headquarters. Honestly, I'm surprised it took six hours. I mean, it's been a while since I've done stuff in binary, but I, even I was sort of like, <laughs> from back in college when, when we first started doing programming and things, it's the first thing you learned was binary and hex. But, you know, there was dribs and drabs of this stuff coming out all over Twitter and Facebook, and you're like, well, well hang on, what's going on here? And, uh, yeah, sure enough, I wonder how many other missions they've done that hmm. on. I think people are going to be going back and looking at footage some of the stuff back from the um, the Apollo days was there some hidden messages there so it's just perseverance I, I thought I read that previous ones had that too it's possible of course we didn't get photos of the parachutes I guess it wouldn't matter uh, but we did get a lot of you know when there was a lot of test flights and things like that like with Orion and stuff like that there may have been hidden messages there yeah maybe did you see that little plate that they attached to it that basically has images of all the rovers? They call it their family image or their family photo. Yeah, there's a lot of little plates on there, though, this time around. And there was one that was celebrating the work that all the key medical workers around the world had done mm-hmm. during coronavirus. And also there was the little plate where your good self and I am part of. Uh-huh. There's yep. a tiny little, almost like a microfiche kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, which was actually etched onto these little chips. I thought it was going to be some kind of disc with people's names on, but no, all of them are literally etched into the chips, and there's 10 million-plus names on them. That takes some doing. Yeah, but hey, our names are on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool, actually. So if some Martians come knocking on your door, you know what it's all about. Well, you know... If the Martians look like, you know, Lita, I'm not going to have a problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> Any aliens want to look like her, I'm totally cool with that. Oh, man. <laughs> there was some Jerry Anderson stuff. Captain Scarlet, I don't know if you've heard of Captain Scarlet. Uh, basically, he was um, abducted by these Mysteron characters who came from Mars. And um, they kind of cloned him, and he's now indestructible. Every time Earth people do something to annoy them, you, you hear these... And this comes transmitted from Mars. And I thought, is that the first thing we're going to hear on this microphone? Huh. I'd be far more impressed if it was near. Capture that creature and return the Illudium P-36 explosive space modulator! <laughs> Good old Marvin. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to blow up the Earth. It obstructs my view of Venus. (laughs) Would really be kind of cool if they could do this. I'm sure that they can, or at least they they could do it at some point in the future. Live video feed. Doesn't have to be great quality, but just a nice live video and audio feed from a future rover. Well, the way things are going, you know, Mr. Musk, and he's um, Starlink around Mars. Ah! Oh, yeah, I saw something like... uh, T-Mobile has already been contracted to have the first cellular network on the moon. Really? Yeah. The NASA contracted, or, or there was something about that. Hold on. I can just see the commercials now. Yeah, here it is. 
No, it's actually Nokia, not T-Mobile. NASA wants to build a 4G LTE communications network on the moon, and it's hoping that Nokia will be able to make that happen. So they're currently working on adapting technology used here for lunar communications. It's a deal. They've already received $14.1 million for it. Wow. <laughs> well, Nokia being, well, a Finnish company, that's going to be one hell of a Bluetooth signal. Ah, I'm assuming that that's the same kind of thing as the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. Oh, like a relay, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd have thought so. Yeah, I can see that happening. Don't try to play any games with that. That's going to be one hell of a lag. You'll be dead, and you wouldn't know about it for another... Isn't it like three seconds each way? <laughs> Something like that. You, you wouldn't know about it. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it makes sense. If, if we are finally going to start going back to the moon with a more permanent method, well, having a network to communicate is, well, that's smart. I've actually got a story on that, actually. Just let me find it. Hang on a second. So NASA's acting administrator was obviously because of the end of the Trump administration, they've had to change or they're going to have to change who the administrator is. So there's an acting administrator at NASA at the moment. And he said the goal of landing humans on the moon by 2024 no longer seems to be feasible. Oh, I'm shocked, I tell you. Shocked. <laughs> Can you hear the shock in my voice? Because not like you and I ever said, no, that can't happen. No. Well, we said from the date that they said it's going to be at least another 10, 15 years. Um, so mm. <laughs> he said um, the 2024 lunar landing goal may no longer be a realistic target due to the last two years of appropriations, which did not provide enough funding to make 2024 achievable. It's the funding. Yes, it's the funding that's preventing it. Not like the delayed SLS that still has yet to launch. Or continuing articles that come out saying, yeah, you know what? Humans really aren't meant to survive there. No, mm -hmm. couldn't be any of that. No, no, no. It's funding. I see where they're going. In light of this, we are reviewing the program for the most efficient path forward. President Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, said that the new administration would support the space agency's Artemis program to land astronauts on the moon and set stage for an eventful human mission to Mars. The administration supports the goals of the Artemis program and we are excited about the next steps. We fully intend to maintain the continuity of the Artemis program. It doesn't say how long they think now. They're just saying, hmm, 2024 isn't going to happen. <laughs> Is this where we put the... Duh! <laughs> Dude, come on. We, we could smell the political BS from here. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was somebody trying to make a mark for themselves, uh, a legacy, as it were. Our previous president? No. <laughs> Do nothing but try to narcissistically leave a legacy? No. Surely you jest. Uh, you, you ask anybody who works for NASA, they would have told you the same. This is not going to happen. Had you followed the SLS, you would know this is not going to happen. Talking of which, there's another, I don't want to say nail in the coffin for uh, SLS, but you know the Europa Clipper program? Yeah. Which was supposedly going to be going on the SLS. It's now going on a commercial rocket. What a shock. That's not a good sign when no. other missions are being pushed towards the commercial sector. Which kind of sounds like Falcon Heavy or, uh, I forget the name of its replacement, probably going to have to be the one to do it. Yeah. 
I'm wondering, um, no, it's probably not going to be big enough. The Ariane 6 is probably not going to be big enough. I can't remember how big the Ariane 6 is. What is the name of the replacement for the Falcon Heavy? Why can I not remember it? No, I can't, actually. <laughs> We're both suffering from brain flatulence. <laughs> it's not Starship, is it? Well, they are thinking of using it for other things apart from going to Mars, but... Um... Yeah, Starship is a proposed two-stage-to-orbit super heavy lift launch vehicle. That's gotta be it. I mean, when it comes to Orion, we know that ULA can handle it. If ULA can handle it, so can SpaceX. It doesn't look good for SLS, does it? I'm sorry, this this is NASA. They're great at things like rovers and satellites and stuff like that. I don't know, when it comes to the big stuff, haven't we learned that maybe they're not well-suited for those? I mean, granted, they can do the capsules and sure. everything yeah, else yeah, that yeah. goes on the top of them, but when the Ares range of rockets was defunct i thought that was going to be the end of it yeah well sls is basically Ares, but mm -hmm. yeah, with, yeah it's the same rocket basically the space race is over now i get it when it came to the saturns back in the day because the you know, big competition with russia big ego boost that sort of thing i get it for that one nowadays is there really a need for nasa to have to develop a massive rocket heavy load system but you know what the thing is? I, I think at this point, the SLS is too big to fail. So much money has already been dumped into it. I think that there's there's simply a lot of, look, we've already put this much money into it. Let's get it going. Let's get it up there. I, I think it's just too big to fail at this point. Just to prove that it can work. Because they've already dumped so many billions into it to just suddenly say, no, nope, that's it. We're done. We'll probably off a lot of people. Yeah. latest on James Webb? It's been pretty quiet, so that's a good thing. Um, I think it's still... Is it supposed to be still going in July? Or has it been pushed back since then? Mm, they're saying it will launch sometime this year so far. It'll be launched from French Guiana. Yeah, we knew that. I'm not seeing a solid date for it. All I'm seeing is that they're expecting it to launch this year. Okay. But it is a good sign that we haven't heard anything. Yeah. Fingers crossed it will launch this year. I hope so. I mean, Grant, at least Hubble is still going strong. Mm -hmm. That's fine, but who knows how long that'll last. Yeah, no news is good news on that front, I guess. But, you know, at, at least they're still, you know, they're, they're still looking ahead past that one. They're moving ahead with their next space telescope called SphereX. This one's a doozy. Do you want to hear the full name for that one? Spectro Photometer for the history of the universe, epoch of reionization and ISIS explorer. Some people have too much time on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, granted, when, when you look at what this thing is going to do, that name is accurate. That's what it's going to do. Mm -hmm. Holy freaking... <laughs> really? It's like, let's come up with a cool name and then let's fit words to fit it. 
There is a department just dedicated to this. This would not surprise me. I really wish they would take Elon Musk's view on acronyms. Although, do you remember we, we mentioned that last time where there was a RUD and we, we were like, well, what the hell is a RUD? And looked into that and a RUD actually stands for Rapid Unscheduled Disassembly. Or for your average Joe. Blew up. <laughs> um, that's a SpaceX thing. <laughs> I'm wondering if that was meant to be totally tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> Probably knowing him. I mean, look at the names that they give to their... Oh, the autonomous drone ships. Considering the names for those, it wouldn't surprise me that calling it a rud was just totally tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that he's he's talking about. What with the um, the don't panic thing on the, uh, on, oh, yeah. on the car dash. Uh, his fascination with Space 1999. If he does get to the moon and start doing things there, if he doesn't call it Moonbase Alpha... <laughs> you know he will. You know, and if it weren't for copyright issues, he'd probably find some way to make the first vehicle look like the Eagle One. Oh, wouldn't that be so cool? <laughs> I love the Eagle vehicles. They're cool looking. But do you know, in the um, the original Star Wars, one of the ships that was going to be used for the Millennium Falcon looked remarkably like an Eagle. Really? And that was because the guy who was designing them at the time was watching Space 1999. It was on TV when they were coming up with this stuff. Because uh-huh. that came out around about 1975, 1976. So, uh, you know, he's got the TV on in the background and started making some drawings. And I went, yeah. <laughs> not surprising, not surprising. Now, I've got a, an interesting story here. It's, it's doing the rounds across Twitter like wildfire at the moment. The first bone cancer survivor to become an astronaut, the first person with a prosthetic body part to visit space, and the youngest American to orbit the Earth. These are impressive firsts. That could be a reality for a 29-year-old Haley Arsenault. In January, the physician assistant was picked to join a crew of the world's first all-civilian space mission. Haley was ecstatic, but at first she had to keep her lips sealed about it. Yeah. I've held on to the biggest secret of my life for a month, she said, and now I get to share it with the world. Her selection for the historic mission was announced earlier this week by the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where Haley was once a cancer patient as a child and now is a place that she works. Later this year, she will launch from Florida on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. I think this mission is going to inspire people in so many ways, she said. It shows them that anything is possible. There will be no professional astronauts on board this spacecraft. Haley will be joined by two contestant winners and flight commander Jared Isaacman, a 38-year-old billionaire who is paying for the entire mission. Must be nice. The mission is the pet project of Mr. Isaacman, who had announced on February the 1st that he had bought the rocket launch. (laughs) Mr. Isaacman is aiming to use the flight to raise $200 million, or £142 million, for St. Jude's, half of which he will be donating himself. Of the four seats available on the spacecraft, one was offered to a member of staff at the hospital. From the start, we wanted a crew member that represented the mission's spirit of hope. 
Mr Isaacman said, I can't think of a better person than Haley to fulfil that responsibility. For Haley, the flight will be the realism of a feat that she never thought would be possible. At the age of 10, Haley was a bone cancer patient at St Jude's. As part of her treatment at the hospital, Haley had chemotherapy and surgery to replace some of her leg bones with artificial ones. In a different era, Haley's prosthetic leg bones would have grounded her ambitions for space travel as an NASA astronaut because of the agency's strict medical requirements. But the emergence of private space missions in recent years has enabled more of us to reach for the stars. Until this mission, I could never have been an astronaut, Haley said. This mission is opening space travel to people who are not physically perfect. Haley was at home in Tennessee when, out of the blue, she got a phone call on January the 5th asking if she would join the mission. Her response immediately was, well, yes please. <laughs> After checking with her family to make sure they weren't adamantly opposed to the idea, and her brother and sister, who are aerospace engineers, really reassured me how safe space travel is. She agreed to join the crew. Yeah, but did you see where they're aerospace engineers? No. Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, okay. So you know they're working for NASA. Uh Uh-huh, that's for sure. Yeah. So Mr. Isaacman is planning to select and reveal the remaining two crew members by March. So by the time you hear this podcast, it probably will be announced who is going to be on board this spacecraft. One will be a winner of a sweepstake competition whose proceeds will be donated to St. Jude's. So basically, a prize draw. And you pledge some money to this prize draw, and if you're a winner, you could be going to space. Now, the other seat will go to a winner of a contest, which entrepreneurs have to design an online store using software made by Shift4, which is Mr. Isaacman's payment technology company. Now, one of the potential candidates is somebody that we both know at TGP Nominal, and that is Abigail Harrison. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, if she is successful, she will take one of Haley's records by becoming the youngest astronaut at just 23. I think there is another candidate who is 21, but I don't know of him. So the other candidate wanting to take inclusion into space is Julia Felesquez, who wants to become the first deaf astronaut. Mm. Have a listen to this. This is Jared Isaacman telling us all about the mission. We're calling our mission Inspiration 4. It's the first all-civilian mission to space. And given that significance of that first, we're trying to be incredibly thoughtful about the people that are going to join us and represent us on this mission as part of the crew, as well as the organizations that we want to, to benefit from this effort which is why we selected St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to be the the charitable beneficiary of Inspiration4. This is a significant first step towards a world where everyone can go and explore amongst the stars. One of the things we hope to accomplish and why we named our mission Inspiration4, to inspire others to be able to do extraordinary, maybe even unthinkable things like go out and venture amongst the stars today, but also to inspire people what's possible that can still be done here on Earth. And if we can accomplish all of that, then we we sure as heck better have tackled childhood cancer along the way. 
The write-up on their website says, In 1962, in the same year that an American orbited the Earth for the first time, a hospital opened in Memphis, Tennessee, committed to a different kind of uncharted territory. Finding cures for kids with cancer and other life-threatening diseases, regardless of race, beliefs, or a family's ability to pay. Now, that in America is a really important statement. Nearly 60 years of scientific achievements later, we're on the horizon of a new frontier in space exploration. At the same time, science here on Earth has advanced our fight to cure childhood cancer. Treatments invented at St. Jude's has helped push the overall childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to 80% in the US. But in many developing countries, fewer than one in five children diagnosed with cancer will survive. St. Jude's has a bold mission to change that. St. Jude's freely shares its groundbreaking discoveries and every child saved at St. Jude's means doctors and scientists can see that their knowledge to save thousands of more children around the world. Now you can see why he wants to put money into this. It's a really important mission, I think. It is, and, and I mean, that's the kind of thing that St. Jude's has been doing for years. You know, parents can stay with their kids for free. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's just the way they've been for a long time. Yeah, well, we've got a couple of hospitals like that here. We've got the Older Hay Hospital in Liverpool. We've got the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. The Great Ormond Street Hospital is a world-renowned children's hospital. And as I say, St. Jude's are doing similar kind of work, and it's, it's amazing the, the work they do there. To be able to have inclusion involved with a space mission would be absolutely phenomenal. Now, while we're on the topic of inclusion in space, this was really weird because only a couple of weeks ago I heard about this and now it's been overtaken by this uh, Inspiration4 mission. In a first for the European Space Agency and human spaceflight worldwide, ESA is looking for individuals who are psychologically, technically and professionally qualified to be an astronaut but have physical disabilities that would normally prevent them from being selected due to the requirements imposed by the current use of space hardware. The project is called the Para-Astronaut Feasibility Project. So they're working with the International Paralympic Committee and use the table that they have developed to categorise the different kinds of degrees of impairments. I heard about this and I got in touch with Mark McCorcoran from the European Space Agency and asked him if he had any contacts with the programme and he's given me an email address which I've sent a message off to them and hopefully we might be able to get somebody on the show who can go into this in a bit more detail and it just seems all to be happening all at once. As I said, the inspiration for mission with this if something great can come from both of these missions, it's a wonderful time to be involved in space. And it just goes to show how things have changed within the last 30 years towards inclusion and diversity. Not as quickly as we would have wanted, but at least it's a step in the right direction. If it's a springboard, that's cool. You know, it's, a, it's better than nothing. Everyone should get an opportunity to have a go at something if they really, really excel at it. There's a story that means a little bit to me because it's based in my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> no bias there whatsoever. <laughs> 
there's going to be 60 jobs created with the opening of a satellite propulsion test centre in Aylesbury, my hometown. The National Space Propulsion Test Facility will be based at the Aylesbury Vale Enterprise Zone at the Westcott Venture Park. It will allow companies and academics to fire up and test state-of-the-art space propulsion engines in high-altitude vacuum, the equivalent of an altitude of 140,000 feet. The facility has received £4 million worth of government funding and is expected to open later this year. Rod Maudley, the director of Patrizia, or Patrizia, which owns the 650-acre Westcott Venture Park, said, This is yet another leap forward in the development of the Westcott Venture Park as the centre of excellence in the space propulsion and associated high-tech industries. The actual test facility area is located in a place called the Westcott Space Cluster and the the companies within the UK space sector already signed up to have their test facilities housed there include the UK Space Agency, Reaction Engines, who will be testing their Sabre engines there, which is absolutely an amazing thing. And also Surrey Satellite Technology, who we have featured on the show before with their, I don't know if you remember it, their removed debris, net and harpoon space junk removal system, which we christened the Gladiator because it's kind of like a trident and a net thing going on. When I was a kid, it wasn't called the Westcott Venture Park back then, but there used to be rocket firing testing facilities when I grew up. And I can remember rockets being tested and this huge noise coming from Westcott and um, sirens going off and what sounded like air raid sirens. And when we were kids, we thought, I don't know, World War Three had started or something. But no, they were testing rockets. <laughs> <laughs> so to have that industry back again um, after all this time would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And put Aylesbury back on the map again. Yeah, so I mentioned to you off the air that something was hot off the press, as it were. And it was so hot off the press that when I read it through... There was one big typo on the article. The UK and Australia have signed a new space bridge partnership to increase investment across the two countries in space sectors. The world's first space bridge, or as it was originally put on here, the world's first space brie, but it's not the first time we've heard about cheese in space. As they look at my Wallace and Gromit clock. (laughs) But yeah, the world's first space bridge will unlock improved access to trade investments and academic research opportunities. The UK and Australia share future ambitions for space and have similar plans to increase the size and job creation potential for the sector. This agreement will further develop the long-standing relationship between the two countries, which dates back to the 1970s when the Prospero satellite built in Farnborough, UK, launched from Woomera in South Australia. It's amazing to think that we could be working with Australia again on space projects, especially now that we might be launching rockets from the UK soon and having Australia involved as well with their newly created space agency which was kind of a space race thing, really, because obviously with uh, Rocket Lab launching from New Zealand, (laughs) Australia were like, "Um, yeah, we should be getting involved. (laughs) 
So our original space program back in the 1970s when we were launching rockets, British-made rockets, actually were launched from Australia. Nowadays, it would seem a bit strange. You know, why didn't we get in touch with NASA and say, look, can we launch something from Florida? But yeah, everything was shipped to Australia and launched from there. Hell of a way to send your gear to launch yeah, it. Yeah, but it worked, though. The Black Arrow rocket was uh, an amazing rocket and got cancelled. It actually got cancelled before the rocket made it to Australia. Hmm. And basically, the scientists and engineers involved made out they didn't get the memo and um, launched it anyway. (laughs) Oops. It's like, well, we've spent all this time and effort and everything getting this rocket prepared. The government has paid the money for it. Let's see what it can do. And it worked perfectly. (laughs) Well, was it a let's see what it can do or... Was it a combination of that and, no, no, we've put in this much time, just send it up. pretty much. (laughs) (coughs) SLS. (coughs) (laughs) But the the Black Arrow was known as the lipstick rocket, mainly because it had a bright red nose cone, and just because Britain are used to having things with red on it, I don't know. You're the only city I know that has a building called the Gherkin. Yeah, we've also got one called the Walkie Talkie. Yeah, that one I'm not familiar with. All right, that's, I'm looking this up. That's also in London. Oh my God. What is that? A walkie talkie, if you're taking some acid, maybe? <laughs> or one of those um, huge brick like uh, mobile phones from the 1980s. Dude, that is one funky looking building. <laughs> yeah, there are some weird looking buildings in London now. That and the Shard. I mean, the Shard is kind of like the the pyramid out in uh, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same. Yeah. A little bit different, but that walkie-talkie, I I can't stop looking at that. That is so bizarre. They had to change some of the glass on it. Uh, To reflect it? Yeah, it reflected into the street and blinded drivers. (laughs) Gee, I can't imagine why. And it even has a little bit of a parabola to it. So, yeah, that could hurt people. Mm -hmm. I love you guys, but holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, L- London's becoming a bit of an architect ske- sketch pad. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> oh, well. Actually, talking of what they call the gherkin, that's not what other people call it, but we won't go into that. No, this is a family-friendly show. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought about that, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look it up for yourself, folks, if you don't know what it is. <laughs> don't say we didn't warn you. So, yeah, so I suppose this is because of Brexit, probably, this uh, trying to make business partnerships. But as I say, Britain and Australia have got a long relationship when it comes to space-related stuff. Well, I mean, hello, Commonwealth. Well, that too. (laughs) It was signed today, virtually signed. So I don't know how, how it kind of worked. Digital signatures. Yeah, probably. Been doing it in the government for years. It was announced something like half an hour before we went on air. Nice. Well, what was that thing in the beginning you said you were talking about the, the space junk and the harpoon and so forth? Remove debris. Yeah. That's the name of it. Okay. <laughs> so just say it as it is. It removes debris. That's what it's called. All right. And that's a company that's working on it? Uh, no, it's the Surrey Satellite Technology. Okay. But that's the, the name of the product, is that it? That's the name of the mission, yeah. Okay, Th- this one will give you even more things to um, mentally visualize than what the gherkin looks like. 
but but it, it interestingly it also involves helping to get stuff out of, of space for space junk and so forth apparently there's a company out there they figured out a way to use iodine to power their thrusters it's sort of like ion engines use xenon well i mean it's a gas which is a problem so it has to be stored in a way that it can be utilized. So probably high pressure liquid, and then it's used that way. Whereas iodine, it's half of table salt. So mm-hmm. it's, it's stable at room temperature, you know, and it's a solid, but it's also not toxic. I kid you not, this is the name of the company. Thrust me. <laughs> I am not joking. It's thrust me, one word, with mm-hmm. T and the M capitalized. Are you sure that's not an Elon Musk company? Nope. According to this, is the spinoff of Ecole Polytechnique and CNRS. Oh, Imagine if Thrust Me had an office in the Gherkin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When they filed to have the company name and so forth, you know they did that with a smile. <laughs> they had to. There, there's no way they didn't know what they were coming up with with that one. Because <laughs> they're focusing mostly on like the CubeSat market. So if they're going to send up a whole bunch of CubeSats, let's have an easy way to get them down. And they actually have a satellite up there now that they're hopefully going to be able to successfully test to push it out of orbit. And if that works, then it could possibly be scaled up to larger satellites. I mean, that right there is going to be less expensive to do it. So if that can work, then that's going to be a great way to possibly get future satellites to get them to have a stable burn into the atmosphere. I mean, it's it's cool if they could do that because we've talked about that before. Mm. Why can't they just find some way to get it to have a, a nice stable burn into the atmosphere? And obviously fuel is usually the issue there. Well, if you put up a solid block of iodine with it and you use that as a thruster to knock it back into the atmosphere, it's a safe, non-toxic, cheap way to do it. And, and you could say that it's been provided by ThrustMe. The, the removed debris system, a couple of years back, they sent it up to the ISS on one of the Dragon spacecraft and it's not a CubeSat, it's a little bit bigger than that, but they actually launched it from the side of the ISS and then they tried it out. They sent something out into space and this machine basically harpooned it, put it in a net, brought it back. The idea of it being is so that you can strip it for... Uh, yeah, yeah, we're using the material. stuff. <laughs> Precious metals that are in yeah, a lot no, that of makes sense. Uh, stuff. But at least with this one, if you can't do that, but if you can give it enough thrust, just knock it into the atmosphere, why not do that? Just give it a controlled burn, get it out of there. Mm-hmm. Actually, saying that about the precious metals being uh, reserved for things, that's exactly what they're going to be doing for the Tokyo Olympics. All the gold, silver, and bronze medals are actually made from recycled precious metals from mobile phones. Yeah, I remember reading about that. Which is kind of cool. That is very cool. We need to do more of that. This one is so cool. With the California Science Center, which currently houses the Space Shuttle Endeavor, is making their facility open to weddings. Oh, yes, I do remember seeing this. The makeup photo of, like, tables and so forth with the shuttle right there. You're in the same room having dinner and dancing and so forth right there with the Endeavor. Why not? I mean... Why not? (laughs) The flagship Yuri's Night event is held underneath the very same spacecraft at that very same center so why not open it up to weddings this is according to christina scion who's the vice president of event services she said we were motivated to provide a service to couples who had to postpone their weddings due to the pandemic and who now may be encountering a shortage of venues because of pent-up demand 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But it's also a massive area. And if you've got a family of nerds and geeks, even people who aren't really into it, they know what the shuttle is. And I'll bet that everybody, even if they're not really interested in space, they're going to be like, wow, this is cool. So right now, it's closed to visitors, but they are taking inquiries and tentatively holding dates. Um, The only catch is that you have to contract with their list of approved wedding planners and caterers but you'll also have complete access to all of their other galleries and their in-house furniture. I don't even care about that. The fact that you could be right there under the Endeavor and it's yours for the night. I would renew my vows and then have another wedding or whatever and say, guys, celebration, Endeavor, cool. If anybody wants to see the kind of facilities that they've got there, look up Yuri's Nights at the California Science Center. Oh my God, it's huge. I mean, they have to be, really. Not to house that, they has to be quite big. Plus everything else they've got in, in there as well. But, you know, but. I could see this kind of catching on and scheduling allowing, you know, having something like uh, the Air and Space Center, mm-hmm. the Udvar Hazy Center in, in Virginia. Oh, hey, we're going to have our reception under a big SR-71 Blackbird. Cool. <laughs> I'm sure you can do it at the National Space Center. I mean, it's not quite the same. You've got a couple of rockets that you can uh, party under. Also, the Science Museum in London, I think you can have wedding receptions and things. Why not? They're open spaces. They're not open in the evening, a lot of these places. So why not use them for other things? Yeah, it makes total sense. Especially because these places have been closed for so long. Oh my God, yes. I'm sure they would welcome the revenue from that. And Mm -hmm. they're not kidding about, you know, weddings having to be postponed and and just pent up. You know, people want to get out. That's for sure. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So John Yes? Another packed show Another one, yes, yes And there's, uh, there was a lot to fit in there because, I mean, it's been such a busy time and such a positive time in the space industry at the moment Yeah, I even got a couple of other things here that we didn't get a chance to talk about There's always time to fit them in Even if we decide to mix it up with a bit of sci-fi there's always going to be something there Yeah, well, sometimes we mingle it and then it works It's the nature of the show, to be honest I mean, that's why we call it your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. I mean, it was really all things science fact and science fiction, this show would be 24 hours long. Well, yeah, I mean, if you've seen some of the uh, Star Wars live stream things that go on <laughs> on YouTube, I mean, two hours based around a two-minute trailer, you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, the difference is we don't monetize on that, so we have no excuse to BS like they do. <laughs> And you can always tell the ones that are making money because their show is peppered with uh, commercial breaks. Oh, yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, more power to you. I like the stability of my 9-to-5 job. Thank you. (laughs) 
It does amaze me sometimes how people make money out of the content they put out. If the content is good, that's fine. The ones that annoy me are the ones who have a whole ton of followers, make a whole bunch of, of ad revenue and so forth, and they're just angry all the time. You know, they have a tendency of being mean or disrespectful or whatever, but people eat it up. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that out, out there. Yeah, way too much. But, you know, life's too short for that kind of stuff. That's why we try and keep it positive on there. That's why we call TGP nominal, because everything is nominal. <laughs> you sure it's not because we're a bunch of garbage pods? Well, there's that too, because when, when I tried to explain that, why is it called the garbage pod? And it was the case of, well, it's a podcast and I spout a load of garbage, so the garbage pod, there we go. <laughs> Here I was expecting it to be a Red Dwarf reference or something. Well, it is a Red Dwarf ref- reference at the end of the day, but a lot of people don't get the reference. Just say it's a Red Dwarf reference. And if they say, what's Red Dwarf? Walk away. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we will be back next month. I'm not 100% sure how it's going to work because we've got a lot of things going on, but there will be some Yuri's Night related podcast next month. Obviously, we've also got the Sky Guide as well for April, which will be coming out as well. So that leaves me with one thing left to say, and that is stay safe out there. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you again real soon. Toodles, you stuffy English nigget. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. I am not going to thrust your engine, sir.